I'd like to talk this evening about how metta transforms us. Some of the ways that as we mature in metta, we become transformed. I want to talk about, in particular, about four ways that we are transformed. Not in a linear way, though. It's, as you know, (laughs) but we do get transformed. Uh, The first way is that we learn better how to lead with our hearts. The second is that we transform judgments, enmity, polarization. The third is that we connect the different parts of ourselves. Metta is integrative of our, of our being. And the fourth is that we find it harder and harder to harm others. In a way, we prepare ourselves to serve others and the world. So those are the four transformations. I think there are others, but that's a lot. (laughs) So the first way is that we learn better how to lead with our hearts. And even if we've been raised or conditioned to be in very different ways, even if we've been conditioned, as I think I was, to be more mental and in some ways to lead with my mind, even though I don't think that was really my nature, but that's what I was trained to do. We learn with metta practice a different way of being and we, I think in the long run, learn to connect our hearts with the other parts of our being. Now, this leading with the heart can be expressed in all sorts of ways. And I was reflecting on how something like metta appears in other traditions. You know, in, in the Christian contemplative tradition, there's the prayer of the heart, which has some similarities to metta. It's a constant invocation of the heart in the midst of the day. It's a way to put into practice what, was, what Sylvia referred to, which was the invocation by Paul to pray ceaselessly. There's uh, something I found also in the Jewish tradition that uh, uh, King David, while he was doing all the duties of a king, said that he intended to stay centered in a kind of devotional presence to God. He says, I keep Yahweh before me always in in his actions in the world. And I was also thinking of Gandhi, who kept repeating the name of God all day long. I think it was a lot like metta. I'm sure Gandhi had his own hindrances and ups and downs. But those of you who've seen the film or know of Gandhi's life, the film on Gandhi, know that right 
at the moment that he was assassinated, the first word that came out was Ram, the name of God. I was also thinking of uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, you know, who sat in the tree for Luna for two years. And she speaks of, in a way that's very reminiscent of uh, what Sylvie was talking about in terms of Rahula. Rahula is uh, the question that the Buddha gave to Rahula. Can I be of benefit in my action? Julia Butterfly Hill likes to ask, is my action coming out of love before every action? That's the practice of metta in a way. And we do this in different ways. You know, we each find our own metta ways. And part of what I love about metta retreats is the creativity of metta. You know, some people find rhythmic metta cadences and others experiment with different melodies and some do it very traditionally, but we each try to see what opens up our own heart. And I was thinking some about uh, my father, Simon, who died about two and a half months ago. And he loved to do, uh, he meditated with me the last 25 years of his life, which was really wonderful. And he liked to do, he said he liked to do metta just sitting by himself and thinking of others. And that was how he liked to do it. He didn't like the phrases. He would just sit and send his metta in that way. And as, as he was dying, I found myself very drawn to metta, as you might expect. And just doing metta and different sorts of practices like metta a lot of the time in the last, particularly in the last week. And I remember there was one, one day we were basically just hanging around and actually he, we didn't think that he was going to die so, so soon right there. He died five days after this. And I was sitting and I found myself very drawn to doing uh, Tong Len, which some of you know, which is a Tibetan practice, very similar to metta, where we breathe in difficulty or pain and we breathe out relaxation and light and warmth or actually um, sometimes warmth uh, sometimes it's, it's more of a coolness and I was doing Tong Lan and I told my father you know what I was doing and he just had a big smile come over his face at that moment so we learn to lead with our hearts we learn to come back continually to the intention. And that, that's why metta is an intention practice. We don't, we're not trying to produce the results, but we're trying to come back to the intention to be kind over and over again. And then we let the results be what they are. We set the intention to bring about kindness. We set the intention, I think it's Sylvia's phrase, she says we cast a spell of kindness with our metta. We plant seeds. We plant the seeds of kindness moment by moment. And there's, um, there's a way as we sow these seeds that this part of ourselves, which is deep, gets touched. This part of ourselves that maybe 
beneath the everyday chatter and our worries and so forth that the Buddha says is this brightly shining quality of the mind and heart that, that I mentioned earlier that he links with metta. He says, the mind and heart are brightly shining, but they are defiled by defilements. But when we touch that deeper part, he says, when we free, increasingly free our hearts with metta, he says, our hearts shine and glow and radiate like the radiance of the moon. But for most of us, this is a training because we don't normally lead with our hearts. I think some people do. Some people don't need to come to metta retreats. <laughs> you know, and maybe, maybe we are some of those and we don't need to be here. Uh, but maybe we also know others who just seem to radiate a kind of kindness. It's their nature. And maybe we ourselves are like that in our best moments. But in a way, we, we really learn how to lead with our hearts with this practice. And for myself, it really has been a training. I think my basic nature is very much in my heart. And, you know, when I was young, I used to be very affected by movies. You know, like I remember, I think with the Driver Ed movies, I was the only one who fainted. <laughs> You know, and although I didn't, you know, I don't think it like as a teenager, I don't think I cried that much, but when I see certain movies, I would cry. And um, my friends, particularly my male friends, w- would not. So there was something, something there. But nonetheless, I was, I was really trained to be kind of mental. And there was, there was a very poignant moment that I remember when I was a student and I was um, living in Germany for a year. And I was actually at that time studying... German. And I, I was living on a farm. It was actually a really interesting farm. It was a, they did sort of the biodynamic farming of Rudolf Steiner. So it was really interesting. And I could talk about that some too, but I won't. <laughs> um, and I remember I was, I would, it was in a little town in Germany, and I had to walk about two miles along this river to get to the place where I was studying. And I remember that my mind at one moment I just said, I'm just thinking all the time. I'm like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> I don't know if you've had that experience, some of you, but it was, it was sort of... And, and, I, and I had been... It was interesting because I had been an athlete. I, w- I was a, a swimmer, competitive swimmer, and so, you know, so I was physically active, but that's not the same as where one's awareness is, you know. We know that, right? And, and so uh, it was kind of striking. I said, is this, is this how I want to be, consciousness on a pole? <laughs> and, and so when I started uh, meditating a little while later, it was really, uh, I'm sure as it's been for many of you, it was like a way of connecting with my body and my heart over time. And, and to discover the senses coming alive and so forth.
So I think even if our natural inclination is maybe more to lead with our minds, or maybe some of us lead with our bodies, you know, some of us lead with our physical presence, I think with metta we learn to lead with our hearts. And we, it's not that we give up the qualities of the mind or the presence to the body, but I think that we develop it as part of our repertoire to lead with our hearts. I think in the long run that we lead with everything. And I'll talk more about that later, because I think that's, that's part of what Mark was referring to when he talks about how, in some ways, love and awareness are, get connected, or the way that um, metta gets connected with wisdom, and so forth. So I think in the long run, we connect those. But in the short run, we train to lead with the heart. And I wanted to tell you a little story of how, of one manifestation that this took for me of, of leading with my heart. I think in a kind of unexpected way. When I was after, well, near the end of the retreat that I was doing last spring, which was done here about five weeks of metta practice, I had uh, a few days here when I was still on retreat, but I had some responsibilities in the outside world. And so I downloaded 400 emails (laughs) and read them. But because, (laughs) hopefully, you don't have 400 emails waiting for you. Or if there are, a lot of them are junky. But I I had 400 emails, and I had to go through them because I had to respond to some of them. And I was still doing metta all the time. And I don't know if I would have come to this if I had just gone home, you know, and the retreat was over and so forth. But I was still on retreat. And actually, I could do nothing else than do metta with every email. It slowed it down. <laughs> and I didn't do too many at a time, but I would, I would basically do the phrases. I would go through a cycle of phrases with each email. I would answer it. And I found myself evolving a practice, which I've kept from that time, which is, with, I still do, with every email, I do metta. <laughs> and I do it both internally and externally. What that means is, I do the phrases, so I do the metta practice. And then I also have, usually at the beginning, of the message, I have a metaphrase. And I kind of tailor it each time. I try to, I, usually I say something, may this find you well, or may this find you in good spirits, or, you know, with people I email a lot who I don't want to get too irritated. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of change it, or, you know, I, I change it around. And the, but So I have both the meta feeling and also the actual uh, phrase in, in the message, and it's totally changed email. Maybe like many of you, I had, I had often wondered, well, how do I apply my practice to being on the computer? We, we don't give many talks about it. <laughs> and, you know, some, and you know, sometimes I thought, well, I can be present to my body, I can try to be mindful, and it was hard, because there's something about the computer where you just get kind of zoomed into a zone or something, right? It's kind of, 
and, and in that zone, all sorts of things happen. And, and so Metta was wonderful answer because it, I just said, I have to, with every email, I have to slow down. And I have to really be present. And it changed things. It was almost Im- impossible to send a mean email. It was like this reminder, this coming back of the intention to be kind. Little would I have expected expressed in email. Metta. And I think that uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow night and Friday morning about the application of metta in daily life, but it really invites that creativity, you know, to see how it works. And for me, it was, it was wonderful. And it's a discipline. Now, every time I just say, okay, time for metta. And it's wonderful during the day, just these little metta moments, you know, constantly. So as we become able to lead more with our hearts, we become able to extend that leading with our hearts to more and more parts of our lives. And so I have people I work with who do metta when they drive. I like to do metta in meetings and so forth. And we bring it into more and more situations. We learn to lead in more and more of our lives with our metta. And we also can bring metta to our difficulties, which I think is one of the powers of metta. So for myself, often, if there's a moment of distress, I sometimes just invoke metta. And I even learn how to lead with metta in, in difficult times. There's a very powerful story of a young woman's life named Etty Hillesom, whom some of you know, who lived in Holland during World War II. And she was um, about 25 or 26 when the Nazis came into um, Holland. She was living in Amsterdam. And when she kept journals, and she kept them for three years, You know, the invasion happened in 1941, and in 1943, she was eventually deported to Auschwitz, where she died. She actually um, chose to um, stay with the people being deported rather than um, accept an offer to be taken away to a safe place. Because she wanted to be with the people she had been with. And in, in, the, in the journals, and the journals come, are in a book called An Interrupted Life, which is a very powerful book, because what happens is that due to the difficult circumstances, somehow, mysteriously, her heart opens and opens more and more. At the beginning of her journals, she's somewhat superficial, somewhat self-centered. And as the journal proceeds, she becomes more and more centered in her heart, leading with her heart, even in these most extreme of circumstances. And I just wanted to read something from the journal that to me expresses this um, potential of leading with the heart, even in difficulties. And I don't mean to say we should be able to be in the most, these most extreme situations, but for whatever reason, she seemed to be able to, to do that. And this is from what she wrote at a um, 
camp that was, it wasn't a death camp, but it was a camp, it was called a transit camp near the Dutch-German border. And she, this is from her journals. The misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and time and time again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it, that's just the way it is, like some elementary force. The feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Against every outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness, drawing strength from within ourselves. We may suffer, but not succumb. And if we should survive unheard in body and soul, but above all in soul, without bitterness and without hatred, then we shall have a right to a say after the war. So we learn to lead with our hearts, and we're in training in that. We do it in small ways, and maybe we do it in big ways sometimes as well. So the second quality I want to talk about, the second kind of transformation, is that we move from judgment to kindness, that we transform judgments, we transform our tendencies to create enemies, to polarize. And perhaps we've been practicing this today with the difficult person practice. You know, we're seeing the extent to which judgments come up. There's an interesting poem from the Sufi tradition from a poet named Hafiz. He said, I had to seek the physician because of the pain this world caused me. I could not believe what happened when I got there. I found my teacher. Before I left, he said, up for a little homework yet? Okay, I replied. Well, then try thinking of all the people who have caused you pain. They helped you come to me. And so when we look to our practice, we see that even if we know sometimes that quality of metta, that brightly shining quality of mind and heart, we also know that it's sometimes covered over. You know, it's covered over by what? By distraction, by fear sometimes, by worry, bitterness sometimes. And one of the most powerful energies that sometimes covers it over are what we could call judgments. And I have found in my own experience and in working with people that in our culture, judgments are some of the most powerful energies. Judgments of self, judgments of others. And by judgments, I'm, I'm referring to both positive and negative, but especially negative ways that we connect some kind of observation or insight with what I like to call an emotional sledgehammer. Do you know what I'm meaning? And, and it's, I think it's very large in our culture. And for myself, it's been one of my main practices over the years to work with judgments. And to, I think I was, you know, came of age pretty judgmental. And 
part of my practice has really been to look at that. And I think we can bring the spirit of metta. And I, th- I know from talking with people that a lot of our work here is really to be gentle and see our judgments. I think part of it is just to notice when they're there. And as I was saying of my own retreat um, last spring, doing metta sometimes helps us see more clearly that there are those kind of judgments, harsh judgments of, of self and other. And I don't know that there are actually more judgments present when we do metta retreats. You know, I don't really think so. I just think we see them more clearly. I think they're kind of around, but they're kind of hard to see because you know what? When they come, they announce themselves as the complete truth. <laughs> and, uh, and that's why we, we tend to um, believe them. And so... For myself, in working with judgments, part of the work is just to see them a little more clearly, to notice them. Part of it is to bring metta more into my life, into my own practice. In a sense, to, to open the door of my, uh, of my heart more. And almost to experience things a little bit differently. To be able to have sustained periods without so much uh, judgment and can be very transformative. I wanted to read um, something from a friend of mine who um, one of the wonderful things about the book that I just completed was that I did a lot of interviews and I got to interview a lot of friends also <laughs> and, and to see in particular how their, their practice had helped them act more fully in the world. And one friend uh, that I interviewed is someone some of you, I'm sure, know, named uh, Temple Smith, who, ha- who works with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and is, um, works also, does a lot of retreats with uh, teenagers, works a lot with teens. And Temple was a monk in Burma for some time, and he did three months of metta at one point. And he reflected some, on the effects of metta, particularly on his way of acting in the world. And this is what he said. To practice metta for three months was a strong and clear indicator of my heart's potential. It changed so many of my views about the world. Previously, I had a huge list about what was bad about humanity, and my list of what was good was pretty short. After the retreat, I could more readily see the beauty in people, being very touched, for example, by watching a father lovingly hold his daughter while she slept on public transportation. To be relatively free of aversion for this period of time changed my entire motivation for activism, which previously had been fueled by anger, frustration, and judgment. Metta changed all that. And yet, we also, we do metta, we we look at the judgments, and I found for myself something that also was very important was to sort of bring a quality of metta to my judgments when they were present. And so for probably about two years, I did this fairly intensively. I would try to listen in my body and my heart whenever a judgment was there. 
I did this sometimes in retreats and sometimes in daily life, and it became a really a major practice, kind of to just to listen. It was almost to listen for what was beneath the judgments, to see what was fueling the judgments. And what I came to see, and so I did this on retreats, and I would do it with sometimes with big judgments about myself, or if I thought that I wasn't, you know... I remember one retreat when I was doing this. Uh, I, I did a two-month retreat, and right near the beginning of the retreat, I had been working really hard, and part, part of my judgments were, I shouldn't have really done this work. I should, should have been doing more meditation. You know, and I had this pretty harsh judgment of myself. And I was working with uh, John Travis at the time, who's been uh, a main mentor for me. And John said, well, just let's listen to the judgments when they're there. And so I started listening. I listened when there were those big judgments and tried to listen what was beneath it. I also listened when there were small judgments. You know, I'd be in the food line, you know, and they'd have tacos. And the condiments and everything would be arranged. So I remember sometimes it would take a really long time to get through the line. Has anyone had any judgments about the food line? <laughs> or, about, you know, or about someone coming into the hall, right, who comes in late or loud or breathing heavily or whatever. <laughs> that, that must be happening a lot. <laughs> so, and, and I would try to listen. Okay, what's, the, what's, what's there? I, there? There was a judgment. I would kind of listen just in my heart. And what I found was it kind of took a while to notice. You know, maybe it took a month or more, but I started to notice that when I really listened for a while to the judgments, I could feel that there was some pain. And in some way, the pain was getting mixed up with the observation in a way that led to reactivity. And in what I found is I tried to tune into what was there, so I would be in the food line, and I would find myself judging something about, I should set it up, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know? And I would tune in, and I would feel, oh, I'm impatient. How often do we notice that we're impatient when we judge? And I would tune in where I would be in daily life, I'd be driving, and someone would be going really slowly. And I would judge, and then I would tune in, oh, there's something else there, there's some irritation. And what I found was that as I did this more and more, including with the big stuff, you know, of my judgments of myself or other or, you know, my government or whatever, as I did that, I found that I start, I, I, there was a way that the touching of the pain, the noticing and tuning into the pain seem to heal somewhat the judgments. And of course, the big pains take time. But there was a way that in our practice, kind of open presence to what's painful, which is really compassion, metta in its form of compassion, is healing. And as I did that more, I found that I was able to preserve the intelligence of the judgments. And that this, for me, is, was an important point, that... It wasn't that I should just try to get rid of judgments. That judgments actually carried intelligence. That some of my observations about the food line might be helpful. Some of yours might be. (laughs) But be careful how you communicate them. (laughs) 
and that my observations about the government, which could be very judgmental, might have some intelligence there. I don't probably have to convince you so much of that. <laughs> or that my, some, even some of my observations about myself, there was intelligence. And so what I found was that the bringing of the spirit of metta to judgments helped to disentangle the intelligence from the reactivity by touching and healing what was painful. And as I did that more, I became more able to act without reactivity on the basis of the intelligence. So I didn't throw away the intelligence. I didn't get rid of the judgments. I didn't, basically, I, didn't, I learned not to judge the judgments. And as I did this practice more over several years, I actually started to develop a very warm place in my heart for judgmental people. I wanted to be around them. <laughs> that didn't last for a long time. <laughs> but I actually, I actually, because I became more able as I could be with my own judgments and sort of go more deeply, I could actually tune in more easily to both the intelligence and the pain connected with judgments. And so I became less hooked by other people's judgments of me, which is very useful. (laughs) Very, very useful. And I, yeah, I I think I still have a warm spot in my heart for judgmental people. It hasn't totally, totally left And near the end of that period, I had a dream. And in the dream, there was a poster in, I think it was in my house. I don't know if it was in my bedroom, but it was in my house. And it was a poster of me with a kind of a Western style, it was a Western style wanted poster. (laughs) Wanted, Donald, for something. And in my dream, I said, It's time to take that poster down. And I knew something had happened. So that's the second way that metta transforms. It helps us to transform judgments into kindness, and I would say also into compassionate action. The third quality I want to mention is that metta is integrative, that Metta, in a a way, connects the different parts of ourselves. And for me, this is especially expressed in the teaching of the Brahma Vihara. I love the teaching, and I've been actually found myself uh, in the last year just wanting to teach about Metta and the Brahma Vihara a lot. And the Brahma Vihara are those four qualities that we're looking at of Metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I think what's really important is that they're taught together. To me, what this suggests is that a mature form of metta uh, in some ways includes the other qualities. That mature metta, or as we mature in metta, we have more access also to compassion, to joy and equanimity that they could be seen in some way. And I'd like to see all of these qualities as really the permutations of the open heart. And we learn to open the heart, and we see the different forms that the open heart takes. 
And it's often said that metta is the quality of wishing well, but that when metta encounters pain or suffering, it becomes compassionate, as it were, it shifts into compassion. It's the same open heart, but it takes a different form. When it encounters beauty or the joy of another person, and I think the joy of ourselves, it becomes joy itself. And maybe you've experienced that with the animals and with the, the trees and maybe with each other, that we, when we encounter something that seems to have joy, it evokes joy, that that's what the open heart does. And then equanimity is the balancing factor in these four qualities. It's the balancing factor in the heart that helps us to, as it were, bring in the wisdom dimension. It really points to, again, how, as been, has been said, I think, by all of us, that, that metta and awareness and wisdom, as we develop, they become more and more connected. In that sense, metta helps us connect them. In Chinese, there's a wonderful way that mindfulness is expressed, and I want to share this with you. The Chinese pictograms for mindfulness include two symbols. One of them conveys the meaning present moment, and the other one combines the symbol for heart and home, heart and home. Put these together, and what you have is mindfulness gives us a home for our hearts in the present moment. And that's that's no different than metta, is it really? Finding a home for our hearts in the present moment. To me, what this points to is that we can we can look at this in different ways. We can see how the different qualities are connected. And we can see that when we haven't adequately developed one of these four forms, let's say that our metta isn't um, so much connected to compassion or joy or equanimity, there tend to be distortions in the metta. And it's connected with some of the discussion of the near enemies of metta and the, um, the hindrances that, that I talked about a few days ago. So, for example, it's possible to interpret metta in a way that is overly nice. I mean, I, th- I don't know if this is fair to Pollyanna, but we sometimes call this Pollyannish. You know, that the metta is kind of overly nice, overly mushy, and maybe try that in some ways is trying to push away pain. That would mean that we maybe haven't developed our compassion. Or another way that that might be expressed is if our metta is overly confined to a narrow circle of people towards whom we have um, kindness, but we kind of shut out the wider world of pain. I think that can be a, a limitation of our metta. 
And so when we, and it, it may suggest that we need to develop more in compassion. And if our metta maybe is overly somber or serious, then we're invited to develop more joy. That's very nice. <laughs> or if we, for example, if we don't have enough equanimity, our metta may be overly attached. You know, we may demand that the person towards whom we're sending metta becomes happy, changes. And there may be some uh, lack of understanding of how happiness depends on causes and conditions. You know, and so we'll look at equanimity tomorrow afternoon. The phrase that I use for equanimity practice is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Mature metta brings that in over time. So brings in these other qualities. There's a wonderful essay on the Brahma Vihara by Nayanaponika Tara. And I'll post tomorrow a little reading list that will give indications because it's available on the web. Um, and he has some very beautiful writings on these four qualities, the Brahma Vihara. And he has some very insightful statements about how the four, he says the four have to pervade each other. Our metta has to be pervaded by compassion and pervaded by joy and pervaded by equanimity. He says about equanimity in metta, equanimity, which means even-mindedness, gives to metta an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. It gives patience to our metta. And so this third way of transformation is the way that we connect, we might say, the different parts of ourselves. We connect our metta with our compassion, with our joy, with our equanimity. We integrate. We integrate our wisdom, our hearts, our minds, and so forth. And metta, I think, calls for that in its development. The last kind of transformation I want to mention is the way that metta makes it hard for us to harm others. Harder, I should say. But, and that it helps us to connect to others and to the world more through helping and through service. There's a very powerful passage that I learned about three years ago when I was... Um, here at the Metta Retreat that I learned from Guy Armstrong, who often teaches Metta here. And it's a passage that I think, um, I'm not sure who referred to it, uh, but it's the passage where, it's the same passage where it's said that it's appropriate to consider ourselves most dear. And this is the passage, and the last line is the one that kind of electrified me when I heard it. So make sure you're grounded. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Maybe it'll just be a, you know, nothing will happen. But anyway, for me, it was powerful. I visited all quarters with my mind, 
nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will not harm another. One who loves oneself will not harm another. To me, a lot of things came together there. One who loves oneself will not harm another. It points to the importance of loving oneself. To love oneself is not to be selfish. It's to do something very fundamental. Let's us be able to love others. To me, it also pointed to how perhaps a reason that people harm others is that they don't love themselves. And so if we want to intervene in the world, we can teach people how to love themselves and also help create the conditions that make it possible for people to love themselves. It's hard to love yourself if you are living in really difficult conditions in poverty or if there's you know, cultural attitudes that may be deprecating of oneself as a member of a group through racism and so forth. Very hard to love oneself under those conditions. So if we could take that and say, let me help create the conditions for love, for self-love, as a response to the world and to the way things are. This is really to say something very similar to what we saw yesterday in the Metta Sutta, that, that in a way Metta gives safety. Metta gives safety to ourselves and to others, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. The Buddha, another time, talked about the relationship between taking care of oneself, loving oneself, and loving others. He said, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So for me, this sense of non-harming and the sense of Metta as a force, really, as a force in the world, a way to be with others, it goes against the notion that love is somehow private. Love is really about the connection with others. It's about going outward into the world and bringing the metta there in ways that, that seem to call us. And that can be a lot of different expressions. After my metta retreat, I had a book deadline. And yet all I wanted to do was create beauty around me. (laughs) Some might interpret this as procrastination. (laughs) But I didn't. (laughs) And so in the weeks after my metta retreat, I, I just put out huge amounts of energy for what, in a very interesting way, is called interior decoration. (laughs) Interesting phrase, isn't it? (laughs) Metta is interior decoration. (laughs) And so I actually 
framed pictures and cleaned up clutter, and metta called me to do that. Interesting. And I think it also can call us to, to be in the world, to act in the world, to bring about more love in the world. I wanted to read something which a person whom I haven't met named Yale Lachman, she wrote, I think it's a she, wrote right after 9-11. And it really is the quality about bringing metta into the world. This was written just a week after 9-11. I was up in the mountains last week, Tuesday morning just after dawn. I crawled out of my tent and ran smack into a ranger whose job that morning was to whisper the news from New York and Washington. When he had finished, we looked at each other for a long, helpless moment. Then we both turned away before either of us could cry. The ranger went off to find more campers. I stood there, staring at a tree. There are moments in your life when the world splits open and forces you to decide what is most important for you and what you are going to do. Immediately, my mind ran through all the scenarios taking place, fear, hysteria, calls for retaliation, declaration of war, nuclear warheads, biological weapons, devastation. Then something made me stop and look. Right in front of me, the river ran down the mountain. A marmot froze on a rock. The real world grabbed me by the collar and hauled me back from the brink. Once it had my attention, it demanded to know exactly what I intended to do. What is required of me right now by everything that is holy? That's the question, and we must find an answer. We can no longer fail to respond. Standing by the river, I thought, We love the world too much. We love our own lives and it has made us soft. Everything we love is fragile and vulnerable, this river, this fish, this rock. We are doomed. They know how to fight. All I know how to do is love the world. So it's a moment of despair in a way. Panicked, I scrambled around in my mind for inspiration, for an image of someone wise who had lived through a war and who could tell me who I was supposed to become in these desperate days. I was expecting a freedom fighter, maybe even someone with a gun. But the person who came to mind was Chiura Obata, the Japanese-American painter who fell in love with Yosemite and the High Sierra. He appeared to me looking exactly as he does in a photograph from 1942 taken on the Tanfaran Detention Center. In the photograph, he is calm and smiling, teaching children to paint. Of all the things to do, there's a war on. Your people have been rounded up like cattle. And there you are playing with a paintbrush. I blinked, hoping to conjure a more martial role model this time. But Obura stubbornly remained. He sat before me out on a rock in the middle of the river, watching impatiently as I struggled to comprehend. Then all of a sudden, I got it. Obada wasn't teaching these kids how to paint. He was teaching them how to love. Day after day, right through the barbed wire fence, Obata taught and showed these children how to see beauty, how to keep their hearts open. He knew that when evil and destruction arrive, we must refuse to stop loving the world. Then, and this is the crucial thing, we, we must act on behalf of that enormous love. 
What America has just learned very painfully is that we have not loved enough. We have cringed at gruesome wire service photos and turned our back on the suffering of the world. We have allowed our own government to bomb civilians, withhold medical supplies, sell weapons to brutal thugs in every part of the world. Through, through our own ignorance, we have helped create a world where desperate people will gladly sign up to be the messengers of death. Now we must decide how are we, we are going to respond, with love or with fear. The whole world is holding its breath, waiting to see what we will choose. So which will it be, love or fear? If you choose love, then you must act today to tell every person in a position of power that you will not allow our government to inflict more suffering in your name. Then you must sit down and ask yourself what you have been put on this earth to love and how you will let this one, this great love of your life, grow bigger than you ever imagined. You and I need to have this conversation with ourselves and everyone we know. We need to figure out how to pool our gifts, all our infinite blessings, and let them spill over the edges of our own small lives. There are people who will try to tell you that love is a luxury and that life in all its miraculous beauty is less urgent right now than the need to retaliate. I am here to tell you that unless we respond with love, we will certainly hand the forces of destruction their victory. Go out right now, plant yourself in the middle of that which you love most, the thing which within you that is most alive, Listen carefully, because as that love cracks your heart open, it will tell you exactly what this world needs from you. This is your holy work, and it cannot wait. Make it big this time. Make it so. So I'll just end with a a very short poem by uh, Dina Metzger that really says pretty much the same thing in four lines. (laughs) And I think it's really an invitation to us to both continue in a very strong way with our metta. And to continue to do it. Continue tonight, tomorrow, and then beyond the retreat. This is what she says. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.